Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. You are in for a very special episode today, thanks to my guest, General Mark Hurtling. We discuss what the future holds for war in the Ukraine now that winter is here, uh, along with trench warfare, and on a much, much lighter note, the power of the chocolate chip cookie. If you can, please leave a review of the podcast on the Apple Podcast site. The more reviews, the better for SEO and all those things that a podcast needs to grow big and strong. And one more housekeeping note, it's holiday cookie bakeathon time. Follow me on Substack for all the recipes, new, old, and interesting that you need this season. MarissaRothkoff.substack.com. And now to General Mark Hurdling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. To us, uh, those of you listening at home, you may not listen to this to the end of the week, but it is Monday, the Monday after Thanksgiving. So I find myself here staring across the internet abyss at General Mark Hurtling served 38 years in the United States Army all over and has now we see him often as a commentator on CNN. And we have you here today to commentate on a number of things. The first thing is we won't be cooking together, but I welcome you and I thank you for being here. You know, I don't think anyone should be cooking today, Marissa, and especially cookies, (laughs) because I've had my fill this weekend and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more in the next couple of weeks. So Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you on this very eclectic and unique program. <laughs> Thank you very much. It is an odd little program, and uh, I, I love that you're here to talk to us today about a number of things. I think the real thing we want to focus on is Ukraine and the war there. But along the way, I'd like to discuss a number of other things, including, and because this is a cooking show, I want to talk to you about something that you did in your past that still has important implications for today, which is you worked on a program with the United States Army called Fueling the Soldier. And it seems to me it was an incredibly important initiative about, in a sense, modernizing how soldiers are fed. Where did this idea come from? How did you get to, uh, what did you arrive at? Well, it arrived as part of a job that I had, but also part of my background. When I was coming out of Iraq as a division commander in combat in 2009, I was approached by a very good friend of mine who happens to be my best friend, a guy named Marty Dempsey, who eventually became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And at the time, he was about to be promoted to four-star general and take over the command of Training and Doctrine Command, which is the organization within the Army that does all of the appropriately training, doctrine, education leader development for the U.S. Army. And he wanted me to establish something new called initial military training. In the past, we would have these five different locations that were all conducting basic training for our new soldiers. And then we'd have advanced individual training, the so-called boot camp and the advanced training. And we would take in about 160,000 soldiers per year. In 2009, when Marty said that he was going to recommend to the Department of Defense that I be promoted to three-star and take over this new organization. He said, you're the perfect guy for it because of your background in training, 
your background in the Army's values and your past life as being a PE instructor at West Point. When I was a young captain, and I'm making a very short story long, but you'll understand how this all fits together. In 1984, the Army decided, after I commanded a tank company, to send me to get a master's degree at Indiana University at the School of uh, Public Health in exercise science physiology to go back to teach at West Point for three years. So my background is in anatomy, physiology, the body, and I did that for a couple of years and then went back to the Army after that. So what General Dempsey said is he said, your background is such that we are seeing some problems, not only in training and the values of our new soldiers, but also in the shape of our soldiers. And at the time, we could only recruit about 25% of the available population because the other 75% of the U.S. population uh, had, did not have a high school education, they had been in some kind of legal problem, or the number one reason, they were in terrible physical shape because of a lack of exercise and poor diet. And this all started in the late 1990s for a variety of reasons. I actually did a TED Talk about how obesity is a national security issue back in, I guess it was 2011, I did that. So I went off to basic training. We did a quick analysis over a couple of months and then instituted a couple of programs. One large program was called the Soldier Athlete. And what we said was, if you're going to be uh, a soldier, it's the equivalent of being a world-class athlete. You have to be fit, you have to be mentally resilient, and you have to be in shape. And one of the things we realized we were not doing very well was feeding our soldiers very well. We were giving them an atrocious diet, contributing more to obesity than eliminating it. So in 2011, after about a year's worth of work, we instituted a series of programs, one of which was fueling the soldier. And it was a revamping of everything we fed in the mess hall, getting away from deep fried foods, a lot of sugar, a lot of Crisco oil for the kinds of things that our chefs and our cooks make in the mess halls and dining facilities, and uh, turned it around for basic training. Some of that has flown into the active army at all our posts and locations, but it was a very successful program. We did some research on it, found that our soldiers were actually losing weight, increasing muscular weight, reducing body fat content, and were becoming more and more prepared for the, the kinds of things we asked them to do as soldiers. Because of that, and because of the great New York Times, uh, an article appeared on the front page of the New York Times about all the things we were doing to change the way we trained and fed our soldiers. And a woman by the name of Michelle Obama read that piece and asked if she, could, if she could come down. You've probably <laughs> heard of her. She asked if she could come yeah, down and see, and see what we were doing in basic training. She spent some time with us liked what the program we were doing and uh, said, this is the kind of thing we need to apply in the, the President's Council on Fitness, Sport and Nutrition that her, her and her husband were kind of driving. So a few years later, they asked me to come back and be a part of that. And that's probably more than you wanted to know about uh, feeding the soldiers and, and healthy eating, which I'm still involved with today. And so it does still continue to this day, like the, the initiative is kept going. Well, that initiative and a couple of others, like there's a, uh, I'm currently part of uh, a group that Chef Andres is with called uh, the Bipartisan Support for, Fuel, for Food and Nutrition Security. 
And I'm also doing some things with the uh, Second Harvest Food Bank and some other organizations that, that look at the initiatives on nutrition and hunger in America today. Right, because you never really think about the point that nutrition really can create a, a, um, a crisis as far as our military is concerned, right? You know, a security crisis. Unless you're a historian of the First World War, which I actually, I studied mostly popular culture. That's what I did all my like, graduate work in. Not as much the war. So please don't ask me about like the sum, like, though I could tell you. But one of the reasons that the British had such difficulty in taking in conscripts were they were under height and they had from like the late 1880s, 1890s, 1900s and on up had atrocious issues with food insecurity and um, people were malnourished like across the right. country. And, and we, um, we've had and the same problem, problem then. We've had the same problem or challenges in our army too in World War One. In fact, one of the reasons that uh, ROTC was started in colleges was because of that same kind of lack of physical fitness after World War I. After World War II, President Eisenhower actually had the initial idea for the President's Council on Fitness because of what he saw with 50% of the draftees not being able to do the kinds of things they needed to do in World War II. So there is this connection. Now we're down to about, in fact, the last figure I saw was 22% of our nation's youth could serve the rest are ineligible for service in the military. So it is somewhat of a national security issue because of a variety of, of things, one of which is malnutrition or obesity, one of the two. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. You, you know, it makes me, it leads to my next conversation, which has us uh, like leaping across the Atlantic, actually, to looking at the war, the crisis in Ukraine and Russia. We're heading into winter. A lot of us, you know, have some sort of historical references to what happens to uh, Eastern Europe during war in the cold, in the winter. And it leads me to ask, what do you think the situation is with the Russian army as it is now? Like they're based off of conscripts, the ones that remained. What are their food supplies like in general? Like what is the health literally and physically of the Russian and the Ukrainian armies as we head in to the well, we'll take the Russian army first. I just read a piece over the weekend about the state of the Russian army. And in these new mobilized reserves, these, uh, this attempt by Mr. Putin to mobilize close to 300,000 reservists who are coming out of the population that has been sanctioned incredibly, that is having problems just with keeping workers in place to do the kind of things they need for their economy. They're trying to pull more than a quarter of a million soldiers into the fight that have little to no experience with military operations. You add to that, one of the pieces in the article I read, I think it was in the New York Times, said that Mr. Putin's military, his, his minister of defense, was having trouble with uniforms and food for his soldiers. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, because you would think they'd be saying we were having problems with precision weapons because of the sanctions and mobilizing and building tanks, but they're having trouble with uniforms and food for these new recruits. Those are the basics that a military provides. So these soldiers that are going to join the fight of the fellow Russians that are already in Ukraine, I don't hold out a whole lot of hope for them 
because not only, number one, are they ill-trained, they are poorly led, they are joining organizations that have been mauled, and they are joining them during the worst time of the year. And, and some historians will say, oh, well, there's a history of Russia's, Russia fighting in the wintertime. That's true, but it was after a long preparation and in different circumstances. You go to the other side, <clears throat> to Ukraine, and from what I've been watching very closely is there has been a generation of momentum in not only the quality of their soldiers, but of the type of operations they're conducting. They're going to be conducting tactical fights on two different fronts, one in the Eastern Front, the Donbass, which is trench warfare, which is going to be very difficult. That's a different style of warfare in and of itself. But then there's that other front in the Southeast where we've watched over the last couple of weeks the great operational maneuver by the Ukrainian forces in and around Kherson, the city of Kherson, in the Kherson, in the Western Kherson Oblast. And I make that differentia- differentiation because in order to go further east now to continue their momentum and their attack, they have to conduct a river, river crossing operation across the Dnipro. And with a river that is that wide in parts, over a mile wide in parts, it's the equivalent of an amphibious assault, much like we're used to on D-Day, when you see the amphibious landings come in and stuff like that. So it's going to be a very difficult operation in both the east and the southeast for the Ukrainian army. The only difference is they have shown themselves to have great leadership, skilled soldiers, and a discipline within their ranks that I don't think the Russian army has right now, nor can they get it in in the near future. Where does that difference come from? You know, Ukraine, small, Russia, big, and big talkers as well. I mean, let's, I don't want to like, you know, simplify this, but they talk, the Russians talk a big game. I'd read something really interesting that you'd written about the lack of sergeants in the Russian command and how if how important sergeants are, if you can expand on that for us and, and why, and instead how the Russian army functions and how that can kind of obliterate communication. I mean, it makes it very difficult, it seems to me. Well, I'll go back back and give you a longer answer to what your question requires, but, but having worked (laughs) with the Ukrainian army for about the last 15 years and seeing them evolve, what they have done is take on a professional model. Now I got some heat within the last couple of weeks about too much emphasis on the sergeant's corps, but I'll continue to state that that is a difference because I watched them train. In fact, we trained some of them at our training center in Grafenbeer. So what you see is a desire by the Ukrainian military to take on the model of a professional army as opposed to just a bunch of conscripts that are coming together in basic training who serve for a year. Are there sergeants, and this might upset some of your listeners, you know, I'll say this, are there sergeants as good as our NCO Corps in the United States Army? No, they're not, but they're fast approaching that. And they're exponentially better than no sergeants in the Russian Army are sergeants who are elected. I'll go even bigger than that and say leadership. It isn't just a matter of of sergeants or the NCO Corps. It is a matter of leadership at the sergeant, lieutenant, captain, colonel, general level in the Russian army, which I saw firsthand and which truthfully my assessment is 
D minus for all of the Russian military. You add to that the fact that Russia is a corrupt, kleptocratic state with an authoritarian leader. And that flows downward into the servants of the country in the military. So if you have a kleptocracy and a dictator that demands so much of a military that's unprofessional, you're going to get crooked officers. I dealt with two chiefs of ground forces in the Russian military when I was commanding in Europe. One was a guy named Stroikov, nice guy but he understood that his military was in bad shape. He retired six months after I met him. His replacement was a guy named Churkin. Six months after Churkin took command of the Russian army, the ground commander, he was court-martialed for taking bribes. And the last I heard of him in 2013, he was sent away for a six-year sentence at a gulag. So if you have your three- and four-star generals taking bribes, doing the kinds of things that I saw the Russian military do, it just filters down through the culture of the military. Comparing that with Ukraine, did Ukraine back in the early 2000s and before that have problems with corruption? They absolutely did. But I think over the last 10 years or so, because of their conflict in the East, in Crimea and in the Donbass, they have eliminated a lot of their old Soviet generals, if you will, and really built a professional officer corps over the last 10, 15 years. Long answer to your question. I apologize. Why would you apologize? The whole point is that I want you on here giving us big, long answers. Not like I'm going to give those answers, right? Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about trench warfare, because I, trench warfare is not a new thing. They didn't just build the trenches today in Ukraine. And I really sound like absolutely simple-minded when I talk that way, but bear with me. Trench warfare has been something that they've had. They've been digging trenches. I was surprised to read, and I'm, is it true, since 2014 that they've had trenches? Yes. When the Russian little green men came across the border and established the so-called breakaway republics of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, there was literally a boundary line between their forward operation and the eastern defenses of Ukraine. During that period of time, it was one of four frozen conflicts in Europe that the Russians had established. You look at Transnistria in Moldova, Nargano-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, and then Ukraine's Crimea and the Donbass region were four regions established by Russia to try and chip away and regain territory that Mr. Putin saw as belonging to Mother Russia, the Soviet Union, the, the old Soviet Union. Ukraine didn't want to start another world war, so they watched that frozen conflict very closely, and they built defensive positions, which eventually turned into trench lines. So literally, I mean, if you were on the, if you were on the front lines of Ukraine in the east, Anytime between 2000, probably early 2015 to 2022, when the Russians invaded illegally, you had different types of trenches that, for fear of escalating, there was a back and forth firing, maybe at times of a shooting war, but nothing like we're seeing today. 
So when you have the amount of artillery that Russia has brought in as of February and the require, their requirement to gain more ground and the amount of ammunition that they are using to shell parts of eastern Ukraine, it has literally turned into the same kind of trench line that historians, like you said, you're a World War I buff, that you would see if you traveled into Belgium or France today and you still see in 2022 those trench lines of 1917, 1916. They're still there. Farmers, I was, I was in Belgium last year uh, during an event, which I'd like to plug too, since you're a World War I buff, uh, with the American Battle Monuments uh, Commission. And literally, we were talking to a farmer in Belgium who said he had just found another artillery round that morning in his field from World War I. So they still find artillery rounds. There are still places in Belgium and, and France that you can't travel because it still will churn the ground so there would be mustard gas still uh, in the territory. This is the kind of thing that's happening in eastern Ukraine now. But instead of mustard gas, it's artillery, a lot of mines that the Russians have emplaced, barbed wire, trip wires the destruction of villages that are part of that farming community in the Donetsk, Luhansk region. So it's just, it, it, you know, the pictures that have been appearing in the last couple of days on local media with Ukrainian soldiers walking through trenches, um, it has all the psychological factors and more that the soldiers experienced in World War I. That's intense. Um... I have two different questions uh, related to this, but I, I want to ask a question in a way that we haven't been asking, that I haven't heard people asking the question as much. Then again, I'm not you. Maybe people do. But the big question, and I started off with it, was we're looking at winter. People are reporting that you know the Russians don't have the doctors that they need, and the Russians don't have the conscripts that they need, and they don't have what they need to be a strong army. But what is their strength? Quantity has a quality all of its own. And that's what I think, you know, there, there's a, there are a lot of pundits who will say our intelligence community got it wrong from the very beginning, that they didn't take into the fact, they didn't take the factors of Ukrainian culture and will, well, the intelligence community really measures equipment and capability. The Russian army was the fourth largest in the world. The Ukrainian army was relatively small. The difference is, you know, you can, you can compare armies by the amount of equipment, the training, the will, the resources they have, the ability to resupply themselves, especially in big operations, their leadership. But the intelligence community can really only, to a degree, take a look at, and I'm, I'm being uh, snarky here, they look more toward equipment and potential than they do of training, leadership, and will. Those are, those are soft issues. Uh, so the Russians have not, you know, on the books, they have X number of tanks, 190,000 soldiers surrounding Ukraine, supposedly a lot of artillery and missile systems, which they have used effectively to kill civilians, unfortunately, and, and commit war crimes untarnished. So are they able to conduct military operations? No. Are they able to, to commit crimes against the civilian population? 
They have been. Have they been held accountable? They haven't been yet, but they should be, in my humble opinion. I would agree with you. I don't know who wouldn't. Does does Russia have a, a, a missile stockpile large enough to keep up their bombardment? Yeah, know? well, this is where the intelligence community comes in handy because they know. <laughs> and truthfully, I don't anymore because I'm not privy to intelligence. But everything open source that I'm reading and some contacts I've had offline have told me that their their supplies are dwindling. You know, we've we've even talked about or there have been even even reports about the U.S. capability in firing precision weapons and giving precision weapons to Ukraine and how our stockpiles are dwindling. They are to a degree. I mean, we still have the stockpiles needed for potential contingencies that we might be asked to do as a military. But how much can you give away without going into those stockpiles is tough. Russia is not. They are using some precision weapons, but mostly they're using dumb bombs and dumb artillery, the kind that have been used since the 1800s. And I personally don't know how much they can use, but if you look at their expenditure rates thus far, there have been weeks and days where they have, Russians has, Russia forces have fired literally thousands and tens of thousands of rounds. That can't hold up forever. And do, do you feel that they have the support from places like, that will give them material, material for material that they need? I think they have some allies that are doing that. And the reports have, have focused primarily on North Korea and Iran. But there was an interesting piece open source uh, today saying that there have been nine large Russian aircrafts that have flown out of China in the last couple of days that seem to indicate that China may be providing things like winter clothing, sleeping bags, you know, non-lethal equipment. But who really knows unless you have the ability to have intelligence on what's inside those airplanes, which I'm sure somebody does, but I don't. <laughs> exactly. But it's something to bear in mind. Speak, so we have been providing the Ukraine with precision missiles. Um, it's reassuring to think of that, you know, there is some balance there. We, obviously, we're going to hold some back on ourselves. I sometimes speak as if I just fell off the uh, hay truck. But we also, we also have a new Republican leadership in the House. Or the Republicans now are in charge of the House. And before the election and then like seconds after they won their majority, they were talking about, taking money away from Ukraine, really looking at how much money they were going to pour into Ukraine, we, we pour into Ukraine. And shouldn't we just be looking at our one border to the South and making that our focus of money? Does, does that sort of talk on their behalf worry you? And let me just start, leave it at that. Yeah, I, it, it concerns me a little bit. And I'll try and be diplomatic in the way I say this. But the ones who were saying, those from the Republican side of the House who are saying this, and this is where I, be, I will become diplomatic, are the idiots. These are the, Idiot, yes. I mean, these are the ones who are trying to get the sound bites and the performance politics. Uh, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Goberts, the Gomars, the, you know, these kind of characters who wouldn't know national security if it snuck up behind them and slapped them upside the head. Then you have could it? 
Sorry. No, no, but, but I, 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 being an optimist and getting back into a more civil mode, I believe that there are some on the Republican side of the House who may not repeat those kind of calls for defunding Ukraine and will certainly understand the implications of doing so. But it does concern me that there is a fraction. Uh, I don't know how large that fraction is, 10%, 20% of the Republican caucus who will say defund support for Ukraine, because it would be, in my view, I'm a military guy, I'm a soldier, in my view, that would be disastrous for a country that's fighting for its sovereignty and for the same kind of values that we allegedly adhere to. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But a lot of things that some on that side have done over the last couple of years have not made any sense to me. But I will remain optimistic that we will do the right thing. I'm for optimism. <laughs> I really am. I'm glad you have it. As a veteran, do you get a sense of how soldiers and their families today view that kind of talk coming out of Congress? You know, I, I've been asked that question a lot. And, the, the, I, you know, I certainly can't speak for all soldiers. But what I'll tell you is the Army, and I'd say specifically the Army, more so than the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines, because they are smaller branches of service. But the Army prides itself in representing the people. We draw, we recruit from all parts of the population. So if you have elements of your population saying certain things, there are going to be people in wear the uniform that believe those certain things, because that's where we draw our ranks from. In the past, that was a very good thing, you know, a very diverse military. But I think now because of the partisan divide, and it isn't just nuanced ideology. Well, I believe in a conservative approach to economics, or I believe in a conservative approach to social welfare. It's not that anymore. It is the desire for power and the incorporation of really crazy ideas that are contrary to what we as a nation say we believe. So that's where it's troublesome to me. Are there those in the military that back the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Louis Gohm? Yeah, absolutely there are. But we have seen uh, research and polling has shown that that's decreased over the last couple of years. And it tends to be generated more by the newer recruits than the older professionals and the officer ranks. And having grown up in the military for, like you said, 38 years, I mean, I remember back in my early days, the officer corps was extremely conservative. And I would say what we might term now as liberal are actually more leaning, more conservative. I mean, the, the divide has become so wide that people who believe in common sense approaches to problem solving sometimes now may be called liberals when they're actually just people who believe in common approaches to problem solving. That makes me optimistic, actually. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Please let's um, not talk about uh, the woke methodology because that just boggles my mind. I do not understand that at all. <laughs> I don't either. That would have to be its own. Then we'd need to be baking cookies or okay, do something good. to self-soothe while we talked about it. 
That's the end of the free portion of this week's episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. If you want even more from Marissa, join the DSR Network at thedsrnetwork.com to get the bonus segment in this episode, ad-free listening, and many other benefits. Thank you again to General Hurtling for being my guest. You can follow him on Twitter or post at Mark Hurtling. And please sign up for my Substack at marissarothkopf at substack.com. <laughs>